Welcome to the second episode of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we will be talking about what forensic psychologists do and what you might expect from a career in this field. There are three fundamental aspects that define forensic psychology, clinical practice, experimental research, and the law. The clinical side focuses on concepts such as competency to stand trial, psychological screenings for law enforcement positions, psychological profiling, assessments, and assisting victims and their families. The research side can include studies on jury selection and decision-making, effects on expert testimony on jury decisions, evaluation of what conditions of the legal system enhance psychological distress, the effect of coercion on the validity of a confession, among many other research questions. The legal side can involve negotiations, trial procedures, discrimination in litigation, and death penalty trials and appeals, to name a few. As you can gather, there are many career paths to take within forensic psychology. However, all will qualify an individual to be a forensic expert. A forensic expert can testify in court as an expert witness. In other words, someone with special knowledge or skills making a person more knowledgeable than the average citizen on a particular subject. Psychologists can provide critical forensic evaluations for the court to determine, for example, the dangerousness of a convicted criminal, brain injury, eyewitness testimony, recovered memories, and partner violence. So what kinds of qualifications do you need to be considered an expert witness? Since the 1960s, most states have required that doctoral-level clinical psychologists may offer opinions on insanity and other mental disorders though there are still some states that do not allow psychologists to make those assertions, only allowing psychiatrists or those with medical training to testify the level of mental deficiency on anything in the realm of quote-unquote diagnosing a disorder. Just because someone has been deemed an expert doesn't mean their testimony is factual. After all, many of these experts are giving their opinion about the psychological state of an individual, or drawing conclusions that cannot necessarily be validated. Psychological theories are constantly evolving. We don't pretend to know everything, or that our current view of certain topics is 100% correct, which is why the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM for short, is updated. Most recently to the fifth edition in 2013. Think of it as a clinical psychologist's and psychiatrist's Bible. The second edition of the DSM actually included homosexuality as a mental disorder. And even though a majority of psychologists at the American Psychiatric Association Convention in 1973 voted to remove homosexuality from the DSM, what was referred to as quote-unquote sexual orientation disturbance, it still remained for people thought to be, quote-unquote, in conflict with their sexual orientation up until 1987. Clearly, psychologists haven't gotten it all right all the time. 
Another example that reflects an invalid and frankly offensive opinion was that of Bruno Bettelheim. Bettelheim, a psychoanalyst in the 1960s, was a large proponent of what's called refrigerator mom theory. He believed autism was a product of emotionally deficient child-rearing practices. Mothers who were cold and did not bond sufficiently with their children were blamed in a time where we had a lack of technology and knowledge about the complex genetic factors that affect the development of autism. Many people distrust forensic psychologist expert witnesses because of the problematic history of psychological theories. Even when there is empirical support to validate a current theory, many people don't trust that it is accurate or don't understand how to interpret such evidence. Thus, psychological testimony can be seen by many as junk science that should not be considered in the legal context. Let's dive into a specific example to give you a better idea of the responsibilities and scope of work for forensic psychologists. We'll focus on predicting dangerousness. From a legal perspective, there isn't much consensus about the accuracy of mental health professionals being able to predict future dangerousness. It is an incredibly important concept with devastating consequences when we get it wrong. There is a wealth of research that has been done on the reliability of experts in predicting dangerousness, and the results are less than convincing. When there is a positive correlation, in other words, when experts are found to predict future dangerousness beyond the odds of just guessing, that relationship isn't very strong. These experts may sometimes do a better job than just flipping a coin to determine someone's fate but it's not much better. This can be seen beyond the profession of forensic psychology to include others within the legal system, including judges who determine bail. We trust these individuals to have expertise beyond the average person in making those determinations about bail. However, they don't do a better job than a well-written algorithm. I get it, trusting computers is scary, they can't see the nuance and circumstances affecting a person. It's the same problem for hiring managers. They can't let go of the thought that humans possess an ability to judge another human in context better than a computer without context. But we couldn't be more wrong. Study after study has shown that more accurate hiring decisions are made when they're made by a computer. The things we think help us make better decisions seeing and talking to the individual we are judging actually introduce bias, whether it's conscious or not, and error into our decision-making processes. Similarly, AI and different algorithms used to assess a sample of cases up for bail were much more accurate at predicting whether the individual would reoffend when out on bail. Meaning, and this isn't incredibly easy to hear. If a computer had been used to make those decisions, there would have been fewer reoffenses that occurred when the judges made the decisions. This is a topic covered very thoroughly in Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book called Talking to Strangers. I'll make a lot more references to this book as the podcast goes along. 
It's a really great read for anyone interested in the phenomenon of overconfidence in reading and understanding strangers. When it comes to the specifics of predicting dangerousness, there are actuarial and clinical predictions. Clinical predictions are based on human judgment that consider clinical variables, which are often dynamic or changing. Actuarial assessments are based on data. They're statistical assessments based on the relationship between validated measures. Actuarial variables are not dynamic like clinical variables. They're what we would consider fact, static, or historical. There is overwhelming evidence, as with the judges and hiring managers, that actuarial instruments are better predictors of long-term predictions of dangerousness compared with clinical opinions. Some examples of clinical factors that many forensic psychologists believe are important include hostility, lack of social support, anxiety, thought disorganization, and emotional withdrawal. Two factors considered most of the time by forensic psychologists include previous assaults and medication compliance. They seem, at least in terms of common sense, like they would be useful in predicting future dangerousness. However, these clinical predictions overall aren't related to actual violence. Just because you might do something and have done something before doesn't completely translate into you definitely doing it again. So what do jurors think? How do these types of evidence influence jurors? Well, one study explored this using mock jurors and experimental conditions. They found that jurors were influenced by both types of testimony. However, the clinical testimony had a much more profound effect on their confidence in the defendant's future dangerousness. This isn't really surprising, though, since a lot of the clinical variables inherently make sense. And even after cross-examination and deliberation of these mock jurors, it's hard for them to fully appreciate the shortcomings of that type of testimony. It's very compelling. This is incredibly important to consider when it applies to death penalty sentencing. I want to read some information from an article that highlights how devastating it can be when appropriate weight isn't put on the right evidence or expert testimony. All source materials are linked in the show notes. Since the Supreme Court halted executions temporarily in 1972, at least 166 condemned inmates have been exonerated before their death sentences could be carried out. Executions resumed in 1977 after states began revising their laws to comply with the High Court ruling. Advocates say that some innocent men have also been executed since then including Cameron Todd Willingham, whom Texas put to death in 2004. One example of a recent case with significant new evidence that surfaced is that of Larry Swearingen. Mr. Swearingen was convicted of the 1998 rape and strangulation of Melissa Trotter, a 19-year-old first-year student at a community college north of Houston. The authorities immediately suspected Mr. Swearingen, who was seen talking to Ms. Trotter on December 8th, the day she disappeared. 
He was arrested three days later on unrelated warrants and charged with murder after her body was found on January 2nd, 1999. There were no witnesses to the abduction or killing, but prosecutors amassed circumstantial evidence that they said pointed to his guilt, including an anonymous letter he later admitted to have written from jail that contained information they said only the killer could have known. It's important to note that Mr. Swearingen later said he had obtained the information from an autopsy report. The prosecution's key evidence was one half of a pair of pantyhose recovered from Mr. Swearingen's property. The state said it was a perfect match for another portion of hose that was used to strangle Ms. Trotter. Blood was also found under Ms. Trotter's fingernails, raising the possibility that she and the killer had engaged in a violent struggle. DNA tests determined that the blood was not Mr. Swearingen's and had come from another man who could not be identified. But a prosecution witness explained that away during trial testimony, saying contamination had probably muddied the results. In 2019, though, a state crime lab director questioned that explanation. The timing of the death established at trial has also been called into question. The medical examiner testified that Ms. Trotter had been killed about 25 days before her body was found, placing the murder date on roughly the same day she disappeared. Since then, other experts have said the body was found within two weeks of death. The medical examiner also later said, after reviewing additional evidence, that she believed Ms. Trotter's body had been dumped in the woods within two weeks of its discovery. Mr. Swearingen had already been in jail for 22 days when the body was discovered. Doubts emerged, too, about the pantyhose. Other experts determined that the hose recovered from Mr. Swearingen's property found only after the police had already searched twice and after Ms. Trotter's body was discovered did not match the hose used to kill her. Unfortunately for Mr. Swearingen, Texas executed him on August 21st, 2019. His final statement was, and I quote, Lord forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. You can see in this example, it would be very easy to believe this man would be dangerous based on his previous alleged actions or clinical evidence, instead of taking into account more actuarial evidence, which could include a number of risk assessment instruments that could be conducted independently of the crime of which he was convicted. There are so many instances where the legal system falls short, where investigations are bungled, court proceedings aren't fair. For the outstanding number of individuals who are wrongly convicted of crimes and sentenced to death, there is merit for questioning the process and whether there is a better way of implementing sentencing and of making these very heavy decisions about someone's life. If nothing else, I hope this discussion gives you pause and encourages you to reflect on your understanding of the legal system, whether it's here in the United States or in your own country. 
Thank you for joining me in episode two. As always, there are detailed notes for this episode, including a written script and accompanying resources, references, and suggested readings on the link to the Google Doc, which is in the episode notes. It is a living document. I plan on updating it weekly as I do research for each episode. I also have a website for the podcast at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is also linked in our episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at theforensicfilespod. And please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. I can't promise requests will be granted during the academic semester, but I will absolutely be drawing on them in the summer months. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N, with the exception of the excerpt from the New York Times article, which is referenced in the sources document. All music you hear in this episode and all episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.